With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Truth About Trucking, live, hosted by Alan Smith, a 30-year OTR veteran, business entrepreneur, and motor carrier transportation consultant, specializing in assisting students and new drivers, and pushing forward to raise the standards of the trucking industry. And now, live from beautiful Citrus County, Florida, here's your host, Alan Smith. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here. I made it, and thanks for tuning in to the show. Uh, July 4th, right around the corner, time for uh, fireworks and celebrating our independence all the way back on July 4th, 1776, as we all know, when we adopted the Declaration of Independence, declaring independence from the Kingdom of Great Britain. So I wish you all a early, happy uh, 4th of July. And uh, I know what I'll be doing on Saturday the 4th, and that is working. I mean, what you know it, it falls right on my day to work, but I can't complain because I know many of you are going to be out there running on the road as well, so running and working harder than me. So, uh, But happy 4th to you anyway, uh, and welcome again to our show here on Blog Talk Radio. And uh, speaking of Blog Talk Radio, uh be having a new... Uh, show coming to blog talk radio uh very very soon um be hosting by the uh one who runs the um truckdriversnews.com um not sure if the show yet is going to be called truck drivers news uh, uh we'll we're going to uh keep you informed on that but uh if you haven't ever checked out truckdriversnews.com it's a great site uh really is i'm on there all the time uh he has news. News. I don't know where he gets his news from. Anything from NAFTA and from a, um, a truck tire going through the windshield of a truck. I mean, it's just it's pretty amazing. It's a really really excellent site, truckdriversnews.com, and they'll be coming to uh, Blog Talk Radio. Uh, I know they're on there right now at at uh, blogtalkradio.com/slash/truckdriversnews, and that's with a capital T. Uh, but again, I don't know if that's going to be the name of it yet. They're still working it all out, uh, getting things all together, just like I remember we did when we were first starting. So uh, be looking forward to that, and we'll keep you posted on that because uh runs an excellent site. So we're really looking forward to uh, him uh, jumping on board here on Blog Talk Radio with a new show, and we'll uh, we'll definitely be uh, keeping an eye on that, out on that and let you know. So we're looking forward to that and looking forward to those shows as well. So. Uh, for now, today is uh, still July 1st, 2009, and uh, I appreciate you tuning in to our live broadcast, and I thought I would take a short, uh, at least a very short little break anyway from trucking. Uh, we've been talking about some very serious issues lately, so I thought we would lighten things up a bit for the show this evening, you know, to um, too much negativity can just wear you down sometimes, you know, so let's... Uh, Let's ease it up a bit this evening, uh, something I've always been uh, interested in. Uh, I have my pilot license. I'm just a little private pilot, so nothing big or anything like that. Certainly no expert in aviation or or anything along those lines, but because I do fly sometimes, i um, always been fascinated with uh, Amelia Earhart and what she did for women in aviation and transportation and uh so that's what we're looking at today, um, scheduled for an hour. We'll try to make it uh, to that hour. If not, we might just cut it short a little bit today, but 
Transportation Mysteries, uh, What Happened to Amelia Earhart, our topic for the show. And again, what does Amelia Earhart have to do with trucking? Well, absolutely nothing. But she has everything to do with transportation. What a uh, remarkable pioneer she was and what a remarkable woman she was. Just amazing. Just some of the accomplishments she made uh, in her short life. Uh, October 22nd, uh, 1922, she broke the women's altitude record when she flew to 14,000 feet. And again, that was in 1922. Just amazing. And uh, it took her two days, June 17th to the 18th in 1928, and she became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic Ocean in 20 hours and 40 minutes. And on June 25th of 1930, she set a woman's speed record. And then shortly after that, on July 5th of the same year, 1930, she broke that record and set another speed record for 181 0.18 miles per hour in an aircraft, and remember again, this is a 1930. So, uh, same year in September, she helped to organize and became vice president of public relations for New Airline, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington Airways. And on April 8, 1931, she set the women's auto gyro altitude record with 18,415 feet in 1931 and on May 20th and 21st two more days in 1932 she became the uh, first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic and she did it in 14 hours and 56 minutes amazing accomplishments that did in there in August uh, 24th 25th of 32 she was the first woman to fly solo, nonstop, coast to coast. She set a woman's nonstop transcontinental speed record when she flew uh, 2,447.8 miles in 19 hours and 5 minutes in 1932. In July, of, uh, July 7th through the 8th, I believe it was, in 1933, she broke her previous transcontinental speed record by making the same flight in 17 hours and 7 minutes. And uh, January 11, 1935, she was the first person to solo the 2,408-mile distance across the Pacific between Honolulu and Oakland, California. And was also that was also the first flight where a civilian aircraft carried a two-way radio. And April 19th to 20th in 1935, first person to fly solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City, and she did it in 13 hours and 23 minutes. On May 8th of 1935, first person to fly solo nonstop from Mexico City to Newark. She did it in 14 hours and 19 minutes, and on June 1st, 1937, she began a flight around the world. Uh, again, on uh, June June of 37, and the first person to fly from the Red Sea to India. And by June 29th, when they landed in uh, Lao, Lai, I guess, New Guinea, uh, all but 7,000 miles had been completed. Uh, but they had to call it quits there because frequently uh, inaccurate maps had made uh, the navigation uh, too difficult. But those are just a few of her accomplishments, and all of this from a woman who, at 10 years old, saw her first airplane at a state fair and was not impressed at all. In fact, she had said at the time, and I quote, it was a thing of rusty wire and wood and looked not at all interesting. So didn't uh, impress her at all. Uh, but on December 28th of 1920, a pilot by the name of Frank Hawks uh, gave her a ride that would uh, forever change her life. And she said later, by the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. And and fly she did, just, just an amazing woman. But on uh, July 2nd, 1937, 
while attempting to uh, fly around the world again, uh, Amelia Mary Earhart, along with her navigator Fred Noonan, disappeared over the Pacific Ocean. And so her flying made her famous, but her disappearance made her a legend. And that's what we're wanting to talk about this evening. Uh, The last leg of the flight to uh, Howland Island was the most difficult. And maps at that time, we call them sectionals, sectionals now, but I guess back then they were still called maps. But these maps at that time were very inaccurate at times. And with all the uh, training that Noonan had as a navigator, he was finding it uh, really extremely difficult to navigate with the poor uh, navigational aids. And Howland Island is a mile and a half long and a half mile wide sitting out there in the Pacific. So imagine how tiny that little thing looks. And the, uh, they, there was a U.S. Coast Guard cutter, uh, which was their radio contact, uh, which was stationed uh, just offshore. And there was three other U.S. ships ordered to burn every light on board, and were posi- uh, they were positioned along the flight route as markers. And uh, back then, you needed something like that, because Amelia had made it very clear by telling everyone she had said, Howland is such a small spot in the Pacific that every aid to locating it must be available. And again, remember, this was in 1937. And so these ships were all positioned around the islands and uh, turning on their lights and for radio navigation to help her find that tiny little spot in the Pacific. Um, at 7.42 a.m., the uh, Coast Guard cutter uh, picked up the message. Uh, they, they, heard, they heard her voice say, um, we must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Been, uh, been unable to reach you by radio, we are flying at 1,000 feet. And the ship tried to reply, but the plane, uh, there was just no response from the plane. It's like they, uh, they just couldn't hear. And again, at 8.45, Earhart reported, uh, we are running north and south. And those words became the last words ever heard by Amelia Earhart. Uh, she was an ultimate pioneer for women. Uh, In a letter to her husband, written in case a dangerous flight proved to be her last, uh, her pioneer spirit was just ever so evident. She wrote, Please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. Uh, so she was just a pioneer for women, a pioneer for aviation and transportation. And uh, it wasn't until nearly two years later, January 5th, 1939, that she was officially declared dead. So tomorrow, July 2nd, will be 72 years since the Pacific Ocean swallowed up Amelia Earhart. Uh, or did it? That's the question. Did it really do? Did that really is what happened? Uh, A rescue attempt started immediately and became the most extensive air and sea search in naval history thus far. And on July uh, 19th, uh, after spending $4 million in searching uh, 250,000 square miles of ocean, uh, the United States government called off the operation. And now, 72 years later, people still ask, whatever happened to Amelia Earhart? And there's uh, literally hundreds hundreds of thousands of ships and and aircraft that have been lost at sea, and thousands and thousands have never even been located. We know that. We know how vast the ocean is. So uh, obviously it's very probable that Earhart and Noonan are just another casualty of the sea, uh, and, and but when it comes to conspiracy theories, uh, I'm just not one to go along with such things. But Amelia Earhart and her story have some amazing puzzles that need to be, if they ever can, be sorted out. 
And I guess this is why I have been so intrigued by this woman and what really have happened to her. Uh, uh, and, and you know, being a being a little pilot myself, nothing nothing related to the kind of skills she had. But I've always followed this story, and when July 4 starts uh, coming around, I always uh, think about that day back on uh, July 2nd, uh, 1937, when she disappeared. Because uh, in that year, in 1937, radio navigation could not be at its best, uh, especially flying so far out into the Pacific. Uh, aircraft today can still have problems with electronics and radio devices, so... This was in 1937, so she she had to be close to the ship because they heard her transmission, or um, I don't know could it have, could it have been just a uh, moment when they just happened to pick up her signal at the right spot, the right time, uh, but yet she was uh, actually hundreds, if not thousands, of miles off course um, in 1937. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I. But you know, this is just me. But two things are certain: one, she was running out of fuel, so she said, and two, they were lost. So I think that much uh, we do know. And uh, being a pilot, trust me, those are two things no pilot wants to encounter, especially over the wide open sea. But but after 72 years, nothing. I mean, nothing has ever washed ashore, uh, no pieces of the aircraft, uh, no papers from within the aircraft, no electrical wiring, I mean, nothing. Um, I, I know it's possible, but that is where I kind of have my problems with the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. That and the fact that there were 200 reports of SOS calls heard in the days after her disappearance. And uh, Rick Glipsby has undertaken uh, <clears throat> 17 years of research and eight archaeological expeditions. And the uh, evidence he and his team has found uh, has him convinced that Amelia and Fred survived. And to begin with, they point out that she never radioed for help. Uh, after the crash, uh, the U.S. Coast Guard ship, the Cutter ship, uh, made an uh, immediate search of the waters around Howland Island, but didn't find any trace of wreckage. So uh, Rick, uh, this Mr. Gillespie's uh, theory is that Amelia became a castaway. He believes that after her last transmission to the cutter, Earhart gave up on finding Howland Island and flew on to another island where she sat down on a shallow reef before making it um, safely to a, a little deserted atoll, a little tiny island. And there, Earhart and her navigator waited to be rescued but eventually died of thirst. And even though Earhart had reported that she was low on fuel, uh, Mr. Gillespie believes this meant uh, she was down to her last few hours and not her last few minutes, because he explained that uh, she had 1,000 gallons of fuel when she left New Guinea, and that should get her 24 hours in the air, which means she had five hours of fuel left. That's a 20% uh, reserve, which is a standard for uh, long-range flights, uh, apparently back then anyway. Uh, another piece of evidence is a detailed diagram of a, a um, human skeleton. Uh, the bones were found by accident when a British expedition visited Gardner Island in 1940. And the British uh, examined and uh, measured the bones and the measurements have been evaluated by a modern-day forensic uh, anthropo uh, anthropologist. And they, they judged them to be the bones of a white female who stood between 5'6 and 5'8. And after the bones were examined by a British physician in Fiji, uh, they mysteriously went missing, uh, couldn't be located anymore. So there's now... Uh, no proof that they uh, belong to Amelia.
Uh, and Gillespie's team also found uh, scraps of metal that they uh, think may have come from Earhart's uh, aircraft. And they also discovered the sole of a woman's shoe dating back to the 1930s. So if Amelia was, uh, was close to Howland Island or any other small island, uh, pieces of the airplane would eventually find their way to shore. Uh, my thoughts on it anyway. But there's, there's more to the mystery. One that I tend to push my attention to more and more because actual eyewitnesses report seeing Amelia Earhart uh, long after the crash. Eyewitnesses. Um, many believe that Earhart and uh, Noonan landed on the Japanese-held Marshall Islands and were taken prisoners of war. Uh, according to eyewitnesses in the Marshall Islands, Earhart made an emergency landing on the reef near the Mealy Atoll, and she and Noonan were picked up by boat and taken ashore. And these are eyewitnesses who claim that this is what they saw. Uh, Alfred Capelli, now I'm pronouncing that right, uh, was the uh, Marshallese ambassador to the United Nations, and he interviewed many of the witnesses who claimed to have seen two American flyers in captivity. And perhaps the most detailed account comes from a uh, medic named uh, Billamon Amron, if I pronounce it correctly, who was taken aboard a Japanese ship to treat the wounds of two rescued American flyers, a man and a woman, and the woman uh, was being addressed to as Amelia. And more eyewitness accounts place Earhart and Noonan in uh, Garapan Prison on the island of Saipan during World War II, and there may be actual proof. In 1944, now this is seven years after Earhart went missing, uh, U.S. Marines overcame the Japanese forces on Saipan, and one Marine said that he discovered a briefcase in a safe in the war zone during the invasion at, at uh, Garapan, Saipan, and uh, he was, his name was Robert Wallach, and he was an 18-year-old machine gunner at the time and uh, joined a dozen soldiers who were assigned to search for stragglers. And uh, he says that he found crucial evidence during that mission, which backs up the eyewitness accounts. Among the rubble of bomb structures, uh, they found a metal safe, uh, which was the only object still intact. And they were all excited because they crowded around hoping to find jewelry and cash and pearls or gold, you know. Uh, according to Wallach, he even said, we thought we were all... Uh, going to become Japanese millionaires. And, but the safe was locked. And one of the dozen uh, of the Marines, the soldiers there, rigged the door with explosives and blew the safe open. And uh, each man reached in and grabbed an item and ran outside to examine his prize, you know, to see, see what riches they had found. And Wallach's souvenir, the 18-year-old uh, machine gunner, uh, his souvenir was a brown leather attache case with a large handle and a flip lock, and it was full of papers. And after uh, after his initial disappointment, you know, he just opened it up and there was a bunch of papers in it, not gold or pearls, uh, he started to sort through the contents. And there were maps, there were passports, there were travel documents, and there were permits. And they turned out to be the personal papers of Amelia Earhart. So he was really stunned at what he just discovered. And remember, this was 1944, seven years later. And uh, Wallach turned the papers over to an officer in the Navy. And uh, since then, surprisingly, the briefcase and its evidence and everything that was inside of it disappeared. And uh, for 50 years, uh, Wallach has been held under the weight of government silence 
and the disappearance of Amelia Earhart's briefcase. <clears throat> Wallach uh, was very adamant about, you might need to turn that down a little bit, uh, Wallach is very adamant about uh, what he found. Uh, and researchers at Allied Artists had, uh, had contacted Robert Wallach, this young Marine, and he believes that somewhere, someplace, Amelia Earhart's briefcase is sitting in storage in a Naval or a Marine Corps warehouse with the words Top Secret stamped on the box. Uh, because if the ship landed in the Pacific, and we know at that point the depth of the sea at that point was 17,000 feet, if it's at the bottom of 17,000 feet at the Pacific, um, how, did that, how did that briefcase end up on that island? And... But in the affair of the missing briefcase, there isn't just one briefcase that is missing. There's really two. So as as Earhart traveled around the world, the second briefcase is believed to have contained uh, canceled airmail postage envelopes. And the canceled stamps on the envelopes were to be used and sold as a fundraising venture for uh, Earhart's uh, world flight. Uh, so with every opportunity, Earhart uh, is known to have taken uh, this briefcase full of canceled envelopes to the uh, local post office. And there she had the local postmaster hand-cancel each of the envelopes with an airmail stamp. And uh, it was very widely known that she always carried this with her. And in February of 1944, three Marines entered a uh, Japanese barracks and found a room that had been outfitted for a woman. And uh, one Marine, W.B. Jackson, said that they found a suitcase containing uh, feminine items and a bound uh, locked uh, book lettered. It was labeled um, Ten-Year Diary of Amelia Earhart. And they turned the suitcase and other items over to an officer, and it was the last they ever heard of it. And uh, also at this Japanese island in February of 44, uh, soldiers discovered a briefcase in the ruins of the airport, and on the briefcase was embossed were uh, two letters embossed in gold leaf, and those two letters were A.E. So... I look at all this and I just really wonder, you know. Uh, eyewitness accounts uh, of what happened to uh, Earhart and Noonan uh, slightly vary. They're very, very close, but there's some slight variations to it. Uh, some say that they were beheaded. Others that Earhart died from uh, uh, malnutrition and, and Noonan was shot uh, now, the young Marine, the 18-year-old Marine, Wallach, uh, he says that he was shown to an unmarked grave site by a Siponese woman who saw a white woman and a man buried there. And, uh, and listen to this. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but in my research I found that uh, senior officers in the U.S. Navy, including Admiral Chester Nimitz, were quoted by reporters to have said that the rumors of Earhart's capture were true. So this came from an admiral in the U.S. Navy. Uh, if the eyewitness accounts depicting Earhart as a POW are true, then it can uh, only be explained as the uh, U.S. government's history of secrecy over the whole uh, Earhart mystery. Uh, another explanation for the secrecy uh, could have its basis in yet another theory. Uh, some argue that it was no accident that Earhart ended up in Japanese territory. Uh, they, uh, they believe she was on a mission to help the U.S. Navy gather intelligence, and her uh, famous flight around the world was the perfect cover. It would be the perfect cover to do that. Uh, spy theorists have, uh, they believe Earhart was recruited shortly after an earlier 
uh, around-the-world attempt had failed. And she had completed the first leg uh, flying from California to Hawaii. Uh, The second leg would take her across the Pacific from Honolulu to Howland Island. But on uh, takeoff, her aircraft spun out of control and crashed. Uh, And Earhart was lucky to get out alive. And the theory is that while her plane was being repaired, the uh, U.S. military arranged to meet her. And uh, Colonel uh, Roland Reineck, a veteran navigator from uh, the Pacific in World War II, uh, has spent 30 years on the Earhart mystery. And he believes the U.S. military offered to take over the, the uh, logistics and funding for Earhart's second around-the-world attempt. But there were strings attached. He believes she was instructed to ditch the plane at the Marshall Islands so that the Navy could come to her rescue, allowing them the opportunity to kind of spy and look on the islands over there. Uh, And Earhart made a surprising change to her flight plan, uh, which uh, Reineck believes was instigated by the U.S. military. Uh, This time she would uh, circumnavigate the globe flying east and and not flying west. And so this would mean flying into the wind, making her journey that much harder. And this is what she actually did. Uh, We know this because she had radioed that she was experiencing 26-mile-per-hour headwinds. But flying east meant the spying mission would take place near the end of her flight, uh, raising fewer suspicions uh, by the Japanese. So uh, Earhart, uh, Reineck believes, uh, would, uh, he believes she uh, deliberately uh, would get lost, maintain radio silence, and make an emergency landing in the Marshall Islands. And the U.S. Navy's search for her would be the cover story uh, for their ships and planes to do a uh, reconnaissance of the uh, Japanese territory. But Reineck believes the mission went obviously tragically wrong, and Earhart was arrested as a spy by the Japanese. Uh, What we do know is that just days after Earhart's disappearance, the United States officially asked permission from Japan if they could search the Marshall Islands, uh, but Japan refused and would not allow them to do so. So spy uh, spy theorists believe the Earhart plot came from the very top and was masterminded by uh, none other than the U.S. Navy's commander-in-chief at the time, which was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, I look at the incredible flying skills of this woman. She did things men couldn't do or wouldn't do. So she knew how to fly. She was a very skilled pilot. Uh, And now in... In 1960, a woman named uh, Josephine uh, Akiyama came forward and told about how told about an experience uh, she said took place while she was living in uh, Saipan. In 1937, uh, Akiyama had seen. She says she has seen. She saw two American flyers there, a man and a woman who were being held by the Japanese. And uh, this is where it really gets fascinating to me. Fred Fred Gorner, a uh, CBS broadcaster, traveled to Saipan, which uh, was at that time under U.S. administration. And he found a number of residents who remembered the flyers, though there were to be no official record of them found anywhere. Uh, some reports indicated that the flyers had been uh, executed by the Japanese, uh, something the government of Japan denied. But Gorner, this uh, CBS uh, broadcaster, he hired divers to search the bottom of the Saipan Harbor, and they retrieved what looked like aircraft wreckage. <clears throat> and 
U.S. Uh, naval personnel that was stationed in the area during World War II reported hearing stories from the islanders as well. Two flyers, a man and a woman, uh, crash-landed and were taken captive by the Japanese. They, they kept hearing the same story over and over and over. And Gorner finally uh, reached the conclusion that Earhart probably crashed in the Marshall Islands and was later uh, held captive on Saipan. So what do you think? Did, uh, did Amelia Earhart and uh, Fred Noonan survive the crash? Uh, ended up on a small island, waited to be rescued, but never were, and uh, uh, just simply died of thirst? Or was she really working for the government as a spy against the Japanese uh, due to the facing war? Uh, these are the two biggest theories out there, but they're not the only theories. There's one more. There's more to the mystery. There are those who believe that Earhart survived the crash, uh, survived the war, and returned to the United States under the cover of a New Jersey housewife using the name Irene Bolum. Uh, <clears throat> this lady in New Jersey, Irene Craigmile Bolum, uh, first hit the headlines in 1965 after a uh, chance meeting with a uh, veteran pilot and Earhart investigator, Major Joe Jervis if I say his name right. Uh, in 1970, uh, this Major Jervis and his uh, partner, Joe Kloss, uh, published their suspicions in the book, Amelia Earhart Lives. And Irene, this Irene Bolum, bared incredible resemblance to Amelia Earhart, really incredible resemblance. And she was offered $1.5 million if she would just submit her fingerprints to prove her identity. And she refused to do so. <clears throat> Up to 1982, <clears throat> the year she passed away, uh, she continued to deny that she was Amelia Earhart. <clears throat> so which is it? Did they simply run out of fuel, uh, lost in the Pacific, and disappear 17,000 feet below the sea? Uh, did they crash, survive, and die of thirst on a small Pacific island? Were they uh, spies for the U.S. government under FDR, uh, crashed and captured by the Japanese and killed as spies? Or did she survive and live undercover as Irene Bolam in New Jersey, finally passing away in 1982 when she would have been uh, 85? <laughs> now, I totally disregard... Uh, the theory of Irene Bolam. Um, and I think that has very well been proven because what they did, forensic scientists took images of uh, the head and the face of Irene Bolam and uh, took images of uh, the head and face of uh, Amelia Earhart and uh, did away with all the face and everything. You know how they can do all that with that science, and they just had the skulls there. And they superimposed uh, Amelia Earhart's skull onto uh, Irene Boland's skull, and it, it was just absolutely no match. It was just so clear to see. So that right there, uh, uh, I blow it. Uh, I just blow it out of the water there. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> Simply fascinated with this mystery. Uh, without a doubt, the most intriguing mystery of any famous person of our time, as far as I'm concerned, a woman who pioneered aviation, who loved flying and found it absolutely fascinating, amazed at how in 1937 you could actually fly through the skies at a whopping 200 miles per hour. And she, uh, she gave a speech on October 30th, 1935, and uh, uh I have a clip here for about two minutes about this amazing accomplishment for transportation. And uh, she still continued her pursuit for the advancement of women in aviation and their abilities to do whatever a man could do. And uh, this little speech became known as the uh, Women in Aviation Speech. Obviously, research regarding technological unemployment 
is as vital today as further refinement or production of labor-saving and comfort-giving devices. Among all the marvels of modern invention, that with which I am most concerned is, of course, air transportation. Flying is perhaps the most dramatic of recent scientific attainments. In the brief span of 30-odd years, the world has seen an inventor's dream, first materialized by the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, become an everyday actuality. Perhaps I am prejudiced, but to me it seems that no other phase of modern progress contrived to maintain such a brimming measure of romance and beauty coupled with utility as does aviation. Within itself, this industry embraces many of those scientific accomplishments which yesterday seemed fantastic impossibilities. The pilot, winging his way above the earth at 200 miles an hour, talks by radio telephone to ground stations or to other planes in the air. In thick weather, he is guided by radio beams and receives detailed reports of conditions ahead gleaned through special instruments and new methods of meteorological calculations. He sits behind engines, the reliability of which, measured by yardsticks of the past, is all but unbelievable. I myself still fly a wasp motor, which has carried me over the North Atlantic, part of the Pacific, to and from Mexico City, and many times across this continent. Aviation, this young modern giant, exemplifies the possible relationship of women and the creations of science. Although women as yet have not taken full advantage of its use and benefits, air travel is as available to them as to men. So there she was, uh, 1935, amazed at the accomplishments of aviation, being able to actually fly 200 miles per hour and still pushing for women's rights and you can do whatever men can do, and just an amazing woman. Uh, I just find it, uh, I enjoy listening to that when she says uh, flying at 200 miles an hour, and now today we have cars that will go 200 miles per hour, and uh, today we uh, commercially fly along at uh, around 500 or so miles per hour, and military jets streaking across the heavens at Mach 1, 761 miles per hour. And, and think about this, NASA's X-43A scramjet that set a new world speed record for a jet-powered aircraft back in 2004 actually hit Mach 9.6, and that's almost 7,000 miles per hour. And, uh, uh, again, our commercial flights, uh, I guess they probably average, uh, I would guess, uh, maybe around 430 to 510 knots, um, which uh, right around Mach uh, 0.92. Uh, that's just a, uh, my, my estimate, uh, which would be uh, roughly 495 to 585 miles per hour, I guess, on the average. Uh, if they wanted to, if they wanted to fly at Mach one or more, I mean, they would they would need special, uh, uh, more specific design to withstand breaking the sound barrier. I would imagine. So I, I guess that's why they stay just a little bit under there at, at around Mach uh, 0.92, uh, 500, uh, 585 miles per hour. But what's really amazing um, uh, now we know supersonic begins. Supersonic speed begins at 768 miles per hour. And uh, did you hear about that uh, car? I'd never even heard about it before until I was uh, looking and doing some research here. But back in 1997, uh, a British team drove a car through the sound barrier in 1997, 763 miles per hour, uh, a thrust SSC jet-powered. Uh, they, the, they broke the sound barrier in a car. Uh, and now... Uh, I read uh, back in October of 08, they were going for 1,000 miles per hour. Uh, I don't know if they've done that yet. I didn't see where they did, but uh, the name of the thing that they're working on now is called the Bloodhound, uh, which is a, a car that's going to be powered by a rocket bolted to a, a Eurofighter Typhoon jet engine, 
and they believe that they're going to be able to drive that car uh, at a thousand miles per hour uh, is is just amazing the technology and and Amelia Earhart was amazed at 200 miles per hour uh, approximately uh, 230 knots so I wonder what she would think today about set almost 7,000 miles per hour I just boggles my mind um, so whatever happened to Amelia Earhart uh, we'll never know but uh, I'll tell you what I think. I'm going with the Japanese. I'm going with a government spy mission. And, uh, again, I'm just not big on conspiracy theories, but I have studied this and looked at this for years and years, and and I uh, just can't take my uh, uh, eye off of that. The uh, There's just too many witnesses. The uh, The briefcase on the Japanese island found by the Marines, the papers, the diary, the maps, the graves. Um, I, I, I just look at all that and just wonder. Uh, I may be really off the record, but, you know, as again, we'll never know. But um, I believe uh, Amelia Earhart survived, uh, was captured by the Japanese and killed because they believed her to be a spy. Um, the 200 SOS signals that were heard. What was that all about? Uh, the U.S. Navy kind of uh, just blew that off. Uh, and let's face it, our government has much to hide when it comes to international issues and intelligence, and uh, I don't have any problem with that. So there are things that we don't need to know. We just we just don't need to know it. And uh, But with the Japanese and the war and, and uh, able to use that as a cover-up to be able to just kind of take a peek over there and, see what's going on in those Japanese islands makes perfect sense. And I guarantee you, Amelia Earhart would have been the kind of woman that would have would have said yes for her country and uh, for the advancement of women. So I can just, I can see her doing that for her country. Um, but we'll never know. But, but this time I'm going with the uh, witness reports. And uh, I believe, this time at least anyway, Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan are buried somewhere on a Japanese island, somewhere out there in the Pacific. But, of course, uh, I wonder if we'll ever really know. So there's my take on the uh, question of what happened to Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan uh, 72 years ago, and you can make your own decision, and uh, when July 1st rolls around again next year, I'll probably be uh, wondering and thinking the same thing. So that's my little fa uh, fascination with this incredible woman who uh, just set so many standards of transportation and aviation, and uh, I just feel that uh, we just shouldn't ever forget her accomplishments and what she did. So um, all right, well, we've got, where are we at now? We're down about 12 minutes. We've got a little bit of time left here uh, uh, back on trucking. Um, uh, have you heard about the uh, pushing for the uh, mandatory speed limit devices on trucks? Um, I was looking through this over. In fact, it was just a report that came out today. Um, uh, truck, uh, truck safety advocates are pushing to mandate speed limiting devices. And the American Truckers Association support the effort, and the Obama administration may be willing to consider the move. And, of course, the independent truckers and conservatives uh, are opposed. And uh, this was put out uh, reporting from Washington by Richard Simon. And it all began with a uh, gentleman by the name of Stephen Owings, whose 22-year-old son uh, uh, died when his car was rear-ended. And uh, he's fighting to have the federal government require the use of speed-limiting devices on uh, all big rigs. Um, he's, he, he was saying, he quoted, that uh, we're not against truckers, we're pro-highway safety. And most often, uh, citizen crusaders find themselves in uh, lonely, unequal struggles uh, against industry groups and lobbyists. Uh, but this time, as uh, Richard Simon reports here, uh, David and Goliath seem to be on the same side. And um, 
Mr. Owings has drawn support from the American Trucking Association, or the ATA, in his effort to uh, get the U.S. Department of Transportation to require the use of the speed-inhibiting devices on big rigs or get Congress to mandate them in a highway bill soon to be drafted. And on the other side are conservatives who oppose government regulation of business as a matter of principles and truckers who own their own big rigs and owners of, of uh, smaller fleets represented by the uh, Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association. And uh, his report goes on. These include drivers such as a uh, lady driver out there by the name of Julia Scott, who said that from the uh, cab of her 18-wheeler, she sees passenger cars doing a lot more dangerous things than big trucks. And she stated uh, if the government is going to require governors on trucks, they need to uh, put uh, speed-limiting the devices in the cars. So both proponents and opponents of such regulation uh, defend their positions in terms of uh, public safety. And uh, his article goes on, um, Owings, uh, the lady driver, she said, one of the things that the trucking industry will say is cars need to stay out of the truck's no zone. In other words, give them space and, well, you can't give them space if you're driving along at a speed limit or even faster and some truck comes bearing down on you from behind going 85 miles per hour. Uh, the ATA says the speed limiting devices already installed by many trucking lines voluntarily will save lives and fuel. Uh, so when the industry itself is asking for this requirement, uh, it's hard to see Congress finding fault with it uh, according to uh, ATA Senior Vice President Tim Lynch. And on the other side, the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association says mandatory speed governors are likely to lead to more collisions when a driver needs extra horsepower for an emergency maneuver and uh, increased traffic congestion when a speed-limited truck attempts to pass another. And uh, we've all been there. I know I have. Uh, so truck safety has generated interest on Capitol Hill in part because crashes involving big trucks tend to be serious and attract public attention. Uh, and speeding, uh, as I read here on the article, whether a truck was traveling too fast for conditions or exceeding the speed limit was a factor in about 9% of fatal crashes involving large trucks in 07, according to uh, federal traffic safety officials. And in Southern California, speed was cited in two crashes on Interstate 5 that produced multiple fatality, uh, fatalities in 07, one in which a big rig rear-ended a, a minivan in, in a Mission Viejo, killing three children. And we all remember that fiery chain reaction accident in a tunnel near uh, Santa Clarita that, Clarita that killed a child and two adults and injured like 23 other people. Uh, so though, though speed more often is a factor in fatal crashes involving passenger vehicles, uh, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety supports mandating the use of speed-limiting devices in big trucks because of the damage big rigs can cause given their weight and the distance needed to uh, stop. And Anne McCart, uh, the Institute's senior vice president, said the potential consequences of a truck going at a high speed are far, uh, far more serious, which obviously we can relate to that. So um, questioning whether the devices would reduce deadly crashes, the Owner-Operator Independent Drivers Association notes that most of the truck drivers involved in speed-related crashes were driving too fast for conditions, not in excess of the speed limit. And the efforts to uh, force trucks to slow down comes as a number of states have been raising speed limits, uh, Utah recently gave the go-ahead for a test period during which trucks could travel up to 80 miles per hour along the stretch of Interstate 15. Uh, the current limit is 75, and Ohio, beginning uh, today, will allow trucks to go 65 miles per hour, the same as cars on most interstates, rather than 55. Uh, so a uh, little bit of uh, trucking news there. Uh, we'll just see see what happens. Uh, uh, let us know what you think uh, at our blog at askthetrucker.com. Um, uh, always room for safety, I guess, but we'll be curious to see what you think. So uh, thanks for tuning in for the Transportation Mystery Broadcast, a little fun and intriguement for a change. 
you can keep up with our show schedule at blogtalkradio.com slash truthabouttrucking or simply type in Truth About Trucking Live, and you can find us there. And if you like our shows, uh, mark them as a favorite. Uh, we pre- uh, appreciate it when you do that, and so does uh, Blog Talk Radio. And we'll be posting a new show soon, so uh, bookmark us and stay up to date on our schedule. So for now, for uh, Truth About Trucking Live, I'm Alan Smith, uh, Drive Safe. Have a great 4th of July, and like always, thanks for listening.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.